what we've been playing, watching, touching, and <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to episode 13 of The Film File, the film show for film geeks by film geeks. Episode 13 may conjure up an idea of mystery. The mystery is, why is it taking us so long to get round to the next episode? Well, Andy's had a birthday and been off in that London. I've been uh, on tour with, uh, in fact, I'll talk about that later, but it doesn't mean that we've not been gathering news and watching movies. So to start the ball rolling, I'm joined as ever by my psychic partner in crime, Andy Meekin. And I'm Lee Ford. And we're going to start, as we usually do, with talking about uh, what's happening in the news. As Andy's trawled the internet to find you the latest juicy news. And then we're going to be looking at a couple of reviews. So, Andy, what do we got? I basically live on the internet. I know you do, yeah. <laughs> I like how you've got it plugged straight into your head now. Um, uh, uh, when we get to the like cyberpunk aspect of like, being jacked directly into your brain, I'll be a happy man. Whatever happened to William Gibson? I don't know. He was, was the cyberpunk. He was. He was the pioneer of yeah. cyberpunk. In fact, I, actually, I, I tell a lie. I did hear the post end of uh, an interview on Radio 4 or something like that, but I've not read anything or seen anything come out in ages. If you have uh, read anything and know where William Gibson is, get in touch with us. So what do we got, Andy? So let's start off with Scorsese news. Uh, oh, really? Have we gone back in time? Is this back <laughs> to the future? Um, we're not going into the delving into what we've spoken about multiple times with Scorsese, but he's got another film in production, which he's tackled a variety of genres over the years, mostly your, your gangster dramas, but like he's done fantasy, he's done all kinds, different kinds of films. His next one is, is going to be his first time of tackling a Western. Oh, that's interesting. I'm a big Western fan. So. Killers of the Flower Moon is set in the 1920s and it focuses on a strings of murders of the Osage Nation in Oklahoma after oil is struck there. Yeah. Well, uh, it covers some of the uh, some of the elements that we'd expect with Scorsese. Yeah, I mean, he loves his uh, true life stories, bringing them to light and looking into like tyranny of like big net, big corporations, things like that. Um, it's based on a non-fiction book by David Gran, who um, was responsible for Lost City of Z or Z. Did you ever see you that? I didn't know. No, I didn't. I, and the, the guy who directed it, I know, whose name escapes me at the moment, went on to do uh, that Brad Pitt sci-fi film that we both loved last year. That the Brad Pitt sci-fi that film. That there Brad Pitt. I think, I think we're doing this in, in colloquialisms. <laughs> uh, the screenwriter is Eric Roth, and he's stated in an interview that he believes it fit the, fits the styles of Westerns such as Rio Bravo perfectly. I'm a big Western fan, and every... Every few years, they talk about the resurgence of, of the Western, and it, it never comes comes about. And and tropes which have replaced the Western, like superhero movies, good guys versus bad guys, has sort of taken over. But I'm, I am a sucker for a, uh, an interesting and uh, and uh, and good Western. Hostiles, I thought, was a great movie that came out. Yeah, uh, with Christian Bale, and I loved the series Godless on Netflix. Uh, I thought that was fantastic and a real throwback to a, to classic westerns. So yeah, I'm all up for that. The big question for me, though, is when will Scorsese make a superhero film? I'm sure it's going to be on the cards. Eventually. With his passion for and it. will it be cinema? Actually, is this going to be cinema, I wonder? Or is this is a straight to Netflix? Well, it's not being confirmed as to who's going to be funding and distributing at this point in time. But with how successful The Irishman has proven for Scorsese reputation-wise, but also for Netflix as a streaming service, it wouldn't surprise me if he sticks down that channel. It's interesting, because do we think that more people have seen The Irishman down to being on Netflix and would have seen it in the cinema. I have no doubt that there's more people, because the runtime, when it came out, there was all this like, oh, oh can, can you sit through that much thing? And that shows that we've got a mentality in this day and age that people look at the runtime and get put off. So going to the cinema, it's like you have to take three hours out of your life. Mm. But on home streaming, I mean, you got up when it came out that some people worked out where's the ideal points to stop if you want to just like cut yeah. it down. And I think with the advent of binge watching, people are more welcome to the idea of sitting down and just watching three and a half hours of something in one go at home as opposed to at the cinema. And you can pause it, get up, make a cup of tea, come back to it afresh. And if you are kind of film savvy, you know where those those scene changes are and those act changes to be able to, to, be able to do that. Uh, the advantage that Netflix has for filmmakers such as Scorsese is that Netflix seem to not interfere in the production. Mm. They just give the funding and just let the creators do what they want, for good or for bad. And when it's good, you get things like Roma, um, which got a Netflix release last year, beautiful film. And then you get The Irishman, which I'm still not sold on that yeah. um, de-aging technology. 
but it was a stunning drama based again on like criminal activities, which Scorsese does so well. Yeah. So I, I wouldn't surprise me if Scorsese decides that he's going to keep down there so he can get the freedom of doing what he wants with films like this, especially when you say that Westerns can't seem to find an audience at the cinema these days, but maybe streaming would be the way to do it. Yeah, I'd be interesting to see, see, and, and we know that Netflix is super, super secret and won't release any stats on it, but it would be interesting to see the stats, whether more people actually saw the last Scorsese film, The Irishman, due to streaming, and then they would have gone to the cinema to see it. Some of these news is from the few weeks ago, so I'm trying to cover everything in general as to what we've missed. Uh, Plans the Apes film, we've mentioned before on a podcast. And there was all the, it's going to be a reboot, or is it a reimagining, or is it to, like, start, whatever. Wes Ball, who's directing, has clarified to state that it's not a reboot. Good news. In his words, it's never been easier for film journalists to actually get in touch with the actual people who actually know. But maybe it's the point to not fact-check these days. Regardless, don't worry, I won't ruin the surprises, but it's safe to say Caesar's legacy will continue. Now, this taps into an issue that I think we've touched on before, where there's too much speculation being reported as fact and news sites are now so worried that someone else has jumped the gun and got like an insider information ahead of them that they're not even fact-checking themselves. They're just repeating and regurgitating speculation. Listen to people like Wes Ball. He's on Twitter. You want to find out for something, if something's real, before you publish it and make yourself look like an idiot, get in touch with him. And we've talked about this many occasions. To some extent, I... We're walking a thin line because what we report a lot of time is the news that we found out on the internet. But we always put that uh, that that argument forward about speculation because it is speculative. No one knows. No one knows the, the exact running time of uh, Falcon and Winter Soldier. It's all speculation. I read somewhere over the weekend that a character called Battlestar is joining it because there was a black guy in a group photograph. <laughs> uh, doesn't mean that it's Battlestar. It might be but it's pure, pure speculation. It's not news. It's speculative. And speculation's okay because we fans have always done it. We always try to uh, uh, join the dots and do the mystery work. But when that becomes news, I'm afraid, uh, and especially more high-profile sites than us, for instance, yeah. <laughs> are getting away with it in print daily, then it, it's, it's, it's a bit of a tragic display of what current film journalism has become. I mean, I never trust any news site that it's... Re, like reports on something saying a source who remains secret close to the like, yeah it's like okay so it remains secret so it could just be anyone it could yeah. be joe blogs at the other end of the phone you don't know you've not investigated this you're not doing your job there's one website that definitely needs to be taken with a pinch of salt and i'm not going to name them here because i think everyone knows how bad they are but they have a ha- tendency of saying a source that is close to us who you might remember reported on this, this, and this, and they'll pick three things that they reported correctly and ignore the fact that they literally chucked a million darts at a dartboard and only three of them hit. That's the kind of bad journalism. That same comic book website reported when I was researching this news that they'd got an insider who told them that Marvel are going to buy DC. Oh, that old chestnut. And I, I just cracked up laughing on my chair. I just thought, that's how bad the journalism's got, that you're just literally just throwing anything out there. Marvel aren't buying DC. Don't be ridiculous. This is where tomorrow Marvel buys DC. And, <laughs> <laughs> and, I and we like completely miss the scoop. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, comp- don't take any news that's given to you until it's been confirmed by the people involved in it. Even if we are speculating on the news, we always make sure that we say that this is just what we've heard. These are rumours and this is not substantiated and we'll keep our eyes out for any further news. Talking of <laughs> further news... I have a story which I don't think we've, we've talked about, which is a particular favourite of mine, which seems to have gathered momentum across the World Wide Web. Uh, and that's that Doc Savage, the Man of Bronze, for those who don't know Doc Savage, firstly, shame on you. Uh, <laughs> and, and secondly, created by Lester Dent under the pseudonym of Kenneth Robson. Uh, and Doc was sort of proto version of Superman to a degree. Uh, he's in fact called Clark for a start. Trained from birth to be just the prime example of human beings in every way, intelligence, strength, uh, physique. Uh, and he goes around the world having adventures with uh, five other members of his team. It's influenced comics, it's influenced TV, it's influenced movies. And it's been it's been in development 
for many, many years that there's going to be a, a, a new movie version. There was a version in the in the 70s by George Powell, starred Ron Eli, who played Tarzan on TV. Interesting fact, if you know the connection between Tarzan and Doc Savage and you're a real fan, drop us a line via Twitter and tell me what that is. It's just a little bit of a little bit of nonsense, but I'd like to. I'd like to put it out there. <laughs> Shane Black, the great Shane Black, in my opinion, uh, has been uh, pushing for a film for for donkey's years, and it looked close on more than one occasion. And uh, Dwayne Johnson was was connected to the role, but it now looks like it's going to TV as a TV series, uh, which is really interesting because I actually think Dot will play better on TV. Yeah, it's uh, as as much as it'd make a great movie, it is that kind of like the serialization would work beautifully. Yeah, and it's the, the fact that there, there are. I think a hundred and odd doc novels out there. And so there's, there's plenty of room for adaptation. And if the first film was to bomb, and I think it, it, that possibility is the connection to the audience that we've, we've seen, as I say, lots and lots of the elements of Doc Savage being played out and other things, including, you know, uh, Red's the Lost Art to a degree. So there is a chance that, that Doc might not, not work on, a, on, on the cinema. But if it's done right, I don't know whether Shane Black's still involved, but I'm looking forward to seeing it as a TV series. Hold that space, we'll keep you informed. Guns Akimbo got released in some territories this past weekend and hasn't done so well so far, according to whatever stats you can get. Well, I watched this unravel live on Twitter. It was like a gladiatorial sport, I believe. It was bonkers. Twitter's great for like when something goes off, you can see everything happening in real time and it just all flames. And this was absolutely phenomenal in the way it went it exploded so many sites have pulled promotional reviews for the page including box office mojo didn't have the film listed until this weekend when it's finally got to be tracking the box office figures it's all due to the behavior of the director jason lee howden on social media it all began with the news that an editor of a film site had used the n-word in a private message about four years ago which screenshot of that came to light and rightly people were quite shocked and offended and called her out for it However, the calling out then went to the levels that we've seen happen with other people who've been yeah, caught out for so much. old tweets or old messages and old jokes and turned into... James Gunn, for instance. James Gunn, for, exam- for example. Leading to her being harassed and verbally attacked and threats made on her life, as happens on social media, because people take things so far to heart that they're going to get a hitman to go around and kill you. The staff and writers of the site quit, the site shut down, and then the news came that the editor was pushed to attempt suicide over it all. Her life was basically, basically ruined. Destroyed. Members of Phil t- Twitter, who are not as toxic, rightly decried the bullying, whilst, just to be clear, stating that the use of the offending word was bad, and hopefully she's learnt a lesson. Hopefully she's learnt more since then and how not to use things in certain contexts. Everyone was over the main peak of the Fuhrer. And then the director of Guns Akimbo stepped in and began an anti-bullying stance on Twitter that became filled with bullying attitude and racist attacks. When called out for it, he then went further on the attack of those who criticised him. It all reached a peak when he stopped using his personal account to espouse his anger, but took to the official Guns Akimbo account, which up until that point was getting used to market the film, was now being used to primarily attack two people who had nothing to do with the accusations, nothing to do with the situation, and would only report on it, and accused them of attempted murder, to use his own quotes. Howden, after the weekend, tried to backpedal and calm things down, but the film's prospects had clearly already been impacted by that point because all the marketing and promotions that everyone had ready, any interviews, everything was pulled. Everything was drawn back. His account then got banned on Twitter because he went back on the attack. And then five other accounts that may or may not be him, but That's they are, pure speculation but they are worded exactly the same way that he was attacking, suddenly sprang up and started attacking people again. So the person who was trying to make a point about bullying on the internet has become one of the biggest bullies on the internet and crippled the chances of the film that he was bringing out from actually getting any traction. What world are we living in? There is a lesson to be learned there. You know what? Stay off Twitter. I think the biggest issue here is that, you know, what he did from his personal account, abhorrent, disgraceful, but he used the official account to market the film as part of the attack. Now, I get that the film is also like a bit of a like social satire on um, like violence and aggression in society, but that doesn't mean you should use the Twitter account to attack people and threaten their lives. It's gone bonkers. I I don't use Twitter. No, no, I'm going to go back on that. I, I'm in a band, as you know, 
mentioned it before, we use Twitter and I occasionally post things on Twitter, which is always to do with, with advertising the band. But I try very, very hard not to read through other, other Twitter because it, it, it winds you up. And then you see people that you know on Twitter and you recognise and you go, I don't, really don't agree with that, that stance that they're taking. That isn't, isn't a stance that I didn't know that they had. Uh, I've seen some, some people I know very well using very right-wing stands and, and shot me. But I wouldn't use Twitter as a, as a platform to attack them back. I'd rather have that conversation in person. It's easy to hide behind I'm telling, of course, I'm telling the world that nothing that they that they don't know, but it's just it's very easy to hide behind your keyboard. And as a platform, surely it's better to have those conversations in person. But there's my moral stance for it, and I'm standing by it. I mean, I, I use Twitter quite a lot. The Film File account is what this sprang off from. It's all part of my own passion project. And yes, I'm hiding behind, like, Film File UK, but, you know, I'm always very clear as to who I am, and I do post photos of myself every now and then. My opinions on there are always my own, but there's many times that I start typing a response to someone and then think to myself, oh, this is just going to result with thousands of people attacking me for no reason at all because they don't get the context of what I'm saying. So I end up deleting it and, like, backing away. It's such a minefield over there. I very rarely criticise any of the release the Snyder Cut movement on Twitter because the one time that I did it, I got lambasted and jumped on by a gang of absolute idiots who didn't get what I was saying. They thought that I was deliberately attacking them and it wasn't. I was just pointing out like how I'm not enamoured with what Snyder's been doing with the films anyway and maybe we are in a better place. No, 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 no. You're not allowed to say that. Like, so yeah, yeah, all the points that I, 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 I don't know if I were clearly made you're making them wonderfully for me. Absolute minefield. And on that note, I mean the Snyder the Snyder cultists, as I now refer to them, they do amuse me at times. And I'm, I'm, I use this as a platform because I don't think many of them listen to podcasts. I don't think many of them like <laughs> the decisions are made. <laughs> everything that they do is just online. Some of them seem to spend all of their day just like retweeting release of Snyder cut and like speculation. Well, the latest buzz for them, and um, Zack Snyder's been running a competition for designer poster for a Snyder cut of Justice League. And um, great competition. He, he, he's embracing his community. Admittedly, he's feeding them little nuggets that are get, keeping them sparked up because he, he wants his cut to eventually see the light of day. I get what he's doing. But it was a great competition. The prize was revealed earlier this week with a photograph of a um, film slate clapperboard with like a personalised message on it, which the message reads, please extend to the bearer of this slate the right to pass all security protocols and the permission to operate this motion picture scene and sync marker on the set of any additional photography for the motion picture known as Zack Snyder's Justice League in the unlikely and purely speculative even that such photography is needed. So he's making it clear that like, yeah, they're not going to let me, let me, they're not going to give me the money to finish this film. No, 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 no. The Snyder cultists read into that. He wouldn't have done that. He wouldn't have that as a prize if there wasn't going to be a trip to the set. So they're definitely getting it released. They're definitely going to start shooting. No, no, you, <laughs> you poor, poor, deluded people. That's not what he's doing. You're getting a signed clapperboard with a personalised... This is going to be worth a fortune to you emotionally as a fan of him. But yeah. also, like, it would be a, worth a fortune if you wanted to flog it. But no, they're reading into it in that ridiculous mindset of this means that it's definitely happening. This means that Warners have given them money to finish the film. They're going to get all the cast back and finish the film. And they seem to be ignoring the fact that up until last week, whenever you said it's not finished, you'd get them all jumping on the chair. He said, he said before, it's done. It's finished. He's posted shots of the cans, the finished print. It's ready to be released. No, this has just clarified that it's not finished. He needs more scenes. It's not a complete film regardless of it but they're ignoring that now no bury that information forget that it does need more work on it but um um obviously it's finished to a degree that it just needs more shots that's not finished <laughs> i i'm surprised more than anything else how long this has this has gone on for uh, and it is it's a story that that doesn't go away and of course zack snyder promotes it by releasing photographs on on twitter and on it, on web pages every every month and every few weeks just to try and keep it alive. And, and and it does, and it creates more speculation. And it's nice to believe in something, but at some point you've got to move on from it. You've got to move on from a career. I don't know what Zack Snyder's planned and uh, to do since then. I know he's got a movie for Netflix. Yeah, he's got his... Um, Army of the Dead, isn't he? Yeah, it? he's going, going back to zombies, which he did brilliantly. Which is his best Dawn film. Dead. His Absolutely best film for film. me. But eventually it's it's got to die out. You can't keep it going. 
for it. And also Ben Affleck announced that there would be not a cat in hell's chance that he would go back to it. Oh, well, on that note, that's not how the Snyder cultists have related to that one. They've ignored all the context of that interview where he says that his whole experience working within that system from Batman versus Superman all the way through dragged him mentally and physically into dark places. He was a mess. He was an absolute shell of a man, and he doesn't want to go back to it. No, 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 no. They read that as like, oh, well, that was obviously just um, Joss Whedon's Justice League aspect that um, got to him. So um, he will come back for Zack, won't he? Where they got that from, I don't know, but that's what I mean about they'll just cherry-pick little bits of information to confirm the belief that Zack Snyder's been hard done to. Yeah. And we still don't know exactly what happened. You know, Zack stepped away from the project because it like all the family issues, his daughter passing away. Terrible like tragedy that befell him. But was he pushed out? Did he did he actually have a finished film or was he still working to that two parter that I'm pretty sure reading reading between the lines, he was still hoping for that second film and so he wasn't doing a complete film? We don't know for sure. But the Snyder cultists seem to be absolutely set in their ways that everything is all to do with Warner Brothers and Zack Snyder's not at fault. And as a result, they're boycotting DC films. Oh, really? Are they really? You see them being smug on Twitter that they've not seen Birds of Prey and refuse to watch it because, like, until they get Zack Snyder back into the DC fold, they're not interested in whatever. They will criticise Shazam. And they'll mock the fact that it was a, a, a double who was the bottom half of Superman in the closing scene of that. It's like, oh, they couldn't even get the real one. It's like, it was for like a 30 second shot of someone walking on set. Yeah. It didn't need to be a, official casting, but they, they are very attacking about everything. It's like, oh, the upcoming DC films, not bother with them until Zack's back. Why? You don't want to support the DC film. So you're clearly not a DC fan. You're just a Zack Snyder fan. Why don't you just wait until he brings out his zombie film, see how good that is, and if you enjoy that, start appreciating what Zack Snyder can do. I want to see Zack Snyder do some great films. I really loved Zack Snyder. I, I'm... Dawn of the Dead, marvellous. the only film 300, loved it. Watchmen, I thought, was as perfect as you can get on screen for an adaptation of the Watchmen. We should discuss that one day. Because <laughs> <laughs> uh, I have some issues. It was after that, when he got to Sucker Punch, that things started to deteriorate. And I didn't appreciate what he did with the DC franchise. No. I got what he was doing, but I didn't appreciate it. It wasn't ticking it ticking the box for me. Let's see where he goes in the future. Let him focus on his future of film and let's embrace what he can deliver. And on that bombshell, what other news do we got? Oh, well, of course, the big Spielberg news. Indiana Jones 5 is apparently in development with <laughs> Steven Spielberg not coming well, back. the fourth one. Oh, yeah, there was a fourth one. Many what? people really? wrote it out of uh, as, <laughs> as reality. It, it, it's out there. It exists. Not many people saw it, no. but apparently there's going to be a number five, which I do have re- reservations about. And even more so with the fact that Spielberg apparently is not coming back and uh, James Mangold is taking over and shooting the movie. Now, I like James Mangold. I can dig on Mangold. I think he's a great director. I think he gets emotion and I think he gets action sequences and he's, he's, a, he's a very, very strong director. However, the idea of an Indiana Jones film without Steven Spielberg or... It's, it's, I don't even know if George Lucas is now connected to it in any way, is is doesn't quite sit right with me. That's a personal opinion, folks. It doesn't mean that I'm necessarily right. But I also, I don't think the world needs an Indiana Jones 5. No, I'm, I'm not convinced it's necessary. Not when we've got films like Uncharted, which is basically, you know, Uncharted series of games were inspired by the Tomb Raider series of games, which was inspired by Indiana Jones. Yeah. So we already got a modern franchise in development, which is coming to the big screen, well, it's going into production pretty soon. Do we need a throwback to a franchise that most people have memories of that fourth film and want to block them from our memory? Do we want to take that risk again of getting excited about something when last time we were so disappointed? The third film was a great closure. He even rode off into the sunset at the end of the third film. I'm with you that I'm not sure that we need it. I don't want to see an old Indiana Jones. No, I don't think there's there's much reason for it. Um, you know, it'd have to be a, a heck of a film to do that. And there's, there's, you know, when we're discussing a film that we no one's read the script for and no one's know anything about at this stage, it might be a phenomenal script and and we do it. But it, it comes back to the Toy Story 4 thing for me, which was great, but unnecessary. Yeah. Wasn't needed. Did something interesting with, with those characters that we didn't see coming in and, and gave it closure. But ultimately, 
should have left it at Toy Story 3 because that was that was a high point and uh, I didn't get the flood of emotion in Toy Story 4 that I got in Toy Story 3. So we'll see. But anyway, James Mangold has now been connected to uh, the director's chair uh, with St Steven Spielberg not looking as though he's returning. On other Spielberg news, uh, the trailer landed this week for Amazing Stories, which is coming to uh, Apple TV+. Plus. Yep. I was a, quite a fan of the original series. Oh, that's throwing back. Yeah, I mean, I remember it vaguely. I remember the Kevin Costner one, uh, probably the best, and that's probably the the one I remember the most. But what I do remember is the talent connected to the the series Spielberg. Uh, Scorsese directed an episode. Clint Eastwood directed an episode. So I'm looking forward to it. Um, I've just started watching the new Twilight Zone, which has landed in the UK yeah, on Sci-Fi. Sci Not enamoured with it yet. I'm hoping. I'm only two episodes in. It doesn't feel like the Twilight Zone to me yet doesn't feel like that moralistic message that the Twilight Zone had in there that, that said something about, about the human condition. Uh, and it's, that's not landed for me yet, but the production values are fantastic on it. I think the problem that something like Twilight Zone's got in that this day and age is that it's got competition against shows like Black Mirror that study our society yes. and the advent of technology within our society in such a great way that Twilight Zone just feels like it's stepping on the toes mm. of Black, Black Mirror when Black Mirror was basically... Well, it seems like Twilight Zone's not around. Someone needs to do this. Yeah. Let's yeah. do it. Um, I, I quite like the TV series of the new Twilight Zone. I, I like what he's doing with it. And I, I'm, I'm a fan of anthology shows anyway. Yeah, me too. I love just having like a 45-minute slice of otherworld adventure that you can just go away from. And if there's something to leave you thinking at the end of it, great. If not, just enjoyment. So I'm looking forward to Spielberg's amazing stories because uh, a bit of enjoyment for 45 minutes each week. I'm sure it'll be amazing. Um. Bigger news, forget your Spielberg. Nick Cage is playing Nick Cage in a Nick Cage film about Nick Cage in Nick Cage films. Okay. I've, I think we've just entered the Twilight Zone. <laughs> this kind of reminds me, and I know very little about, about what you're talking about, us because my head's confused, uh, the time that Jean-Claude Van Damme played Jean-Claude Van Damme. Oh, on these uh, very short-lived Amazon TV series. Yeah, and the movie JVC, yeah. yeah. The unbearable weight of massive talent is in development and Cage is playing an actor called Nick Cage who's trying desperately to get cast in the Tarantino film. Whilst he struggles with debt and strained relationships with his teen daughter, he also talks to an egotistical 90s version of himself who mocks him for his recent garbage output. This is as meta as you will ever get. Yeah, it is. Is, is. Is it a film or is it Nick Cage's therapy session? Are we, I, are I think it's about? a mixture of both. He then also ends up embroiled in, in an international espionage event. Word has come from Cage himself that Tom Gormican's new film will see him recreate scenes from his iconic late 90s work, such as Con Air and Face Off. If Nick Cage decided not to do this film, they're a bit stuck, really, aren't they? It's, I think it's brilliant that he's completely bought into it. As he said, it's a stylized version of me, and the fact I have to even refer to myself in the third person makes me extremely uncomfortable. There are many scenes in the movie where modern or contemporary here we go, Nick Cage, and then young Nick Cage are colliding and arguing and battling it out. It's an acrobatic approach to acting. I, I just think this is just perfect material for him to actually get a release that will get the big screen because Nick Cage churns out 400 films per year at the moment. I know, he's probably the like hardest that. working man in showbiz right now. But they're pretty much all straight to home release. There's very rare that you get any of them hit on the big screen. I think this is the kind of thing that people love Nick Cage, despite how bad he is, but him playing a mocking version of himself, mocking his own lack of getting success these days against his 90s, like, I was huge, I was big once. This could be big screen material, and this could bring an audience back for him who kind of drifted away after his remake of Wicker Man. Yeah, there's, there's another actor who springs it instantly to mind who's gone through this, uh, channeled this sort of career dive, nosedive, Still working, still being incredibly active, but not working on films that are giving them any sort of big critical response. Uh, and, and that's John Cusack. Of course, they were both in, in a film together. And John Cusack was at the top of his game as a as a as a writer. You know, you think of uh, High Fidelity, which is probably the most John Cusack of John Cusack yeah. films, and then suddenly faded into not into obscurity because he's still out there working. On these on these odd thrillers that seem to turn up on Netflix, or About a few years ago, he was in Stephen King's Cell. Yeah, which I never saw. And it's not good. And I really and it, and I really liked the Stephen King book because it, I thought it uh, it was one of those Stephen King books which happened every now and then where you didn't need nine thousand pages to yeah. to tell a story. Yeah, it's 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 interesting how those those 
both those careers have, have, have turned around. That Both actors are still working, but both actors are in, in much need of better material than the, what they've been getting. Even though I do hear Nick Cage in The Colour of Space is, uh, is, is particularly well worth seeing. And I know you're a big fan of Mandy, weren't you? Yes. And uh, Mom and Dad. Yeah. Which Mom and Dad, for me, was like the best Nick Cage film in the past 20 years. Absolutely great film. So much dark comedy in there. Well worth checking out if you've not already. Moving away from that, onto um, Apple. Now, oh, didn't we just briefly segue from that? But now we're, go- we're going to mention that um, apparently Apple don't allow bad guys to use iPhones. That, that, you know what? I'm now going to look at every movie and see who is, is on their, their cell phone and, and see if it's um, a good guy or a This bad guy. comes from Ryan Johnson, our favourite director of um, modern mysteries from last year. It revealed the insider secret that restrictions from the tech giants mean that their phones are never to be used by bad people. In his quote, I don't know if I should say this or not, not because it's lascivious or something, but because it's going to screw me on the next mystery movie that I write. But forget it. I'll say it. It's very interesting. Apple, they let you use iPhones in movies, but, and this is very pivotal, if you're ever watching a mystery movie, bad guys cannot have an iPhone on camera. Oh no, every single filmmaker that has a bad guy in their movie, there's supposed to be a secret, Wants to murder me right now. So basically, if you're watching a film, some people are using iPhones, you know that Apple have an involvement in that film. If you then see someone take out a Samsung or any other kind of phone, they're going to be the bad guy who's going to betray them. And there's all your secrets of light cinema just blown open in one fell swoop. Okay, I'm going to... Uh, listen, get in touch with us. If you can prove to us that you have seen a bad guy using an iPhone. Let us know. Let us know the movie. And you can reach us on Twitter, which we've been talking about. And that address is... At Filmfile UK. Let's round off the news this week with the sad news of the passing of James Lipton, um, the Dean Emeritus of the Actors Studio, who was responsible for the creation and hosting over 24 years of the Inside the Actors Studio series of interviews. Passed away, age 93. Over the years, he must have questioned over 300 actors, some a couple of times, in front of aspiring actors, some who went on to make names for themselves, always opening the audience up at the end to be able to ask questions themselves, which um, there's been quite a few named celebrities who you would have spotted in earlier episodes who then became a big name, who were learning from what these actors were sharing in front of them, and also responsible for the famous question that he asked of everyone, what's your favourite curse word? Now, I feel I'm going to have to bleep some of this out, but what's your favourite curse word, Lee? Mine is mother... <laughs> there you go, I've said it. <laughs> that's that's going to end up with a mother, and, and that's about it. My my, my one is something... I tend to combine random words together, so I'll do things like jizz monkey. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think we need to bleep that and, one. And cockwomble. Maybe that one. Cockwomble I absolutely love. I think that's a great insult. You just made life hard for <laughs> yourself with the edit. This one. <laughs> might, just, might just tick that box to flag this up as maybe a bit sensitive. On when we have a guest, we shall ask them that that question. But no, I, I spent... When I first got um, cable TV through... I think it was Telly West way back then. Um, I used to spend hours watching all the old episodes of Inside the Actor Studio that were showing on one of the channels. Yeah, because it never got a big a big airing in this country. It was always uh, um, late night, sort of tucked away somewhere. So yeah, I I grew to love his style of like questioning and interrogating, and sometimes he dug down deep. But a lot of the whole interview is all about like where they got their inspiration from, how they, did he manage to deliver it? Not like wild things like oh, how's your wife? And oh, hey, yeah. your kids. It was about it was about it the was craft. All about the craft, and that's what I loved. It was like the real probing interest into what makes this person such a star on the screen. And I, talking of uh, um, future stars being in the audience, I do remember one with Bradley Cooper in the audience. Yeah, he um, famously asked one question and then uh, a few years later got his big break. Yeah. And whatever happened to him? I don't know. I uh, did three Hangover films and then... That was it. Yeah. That's the news. Just a bit of housekeeping before we move on to the reviews. If you are a fan of this particular podcast, please subscribe. It helps our figures. Uh, come and join us in the Film File Party. Uh, tell all your friends. We like you very much for that. We love you. In fact, we'll come round to your house and we'll have dinner with you. How about that? You're cooking. So what have you seen? I, I've got to start out. I'm on tour at the moment with, uh, and wait for this, I'm on tour on the Whitney Houston tour. Now everyone goes, Whitney Houston, isn't she? And I have to say yes, but this is a hologram tour, which my love of hologram started with Logan's Run. So there is a filmic connection, which the ending of Logan's Run had 
holograms in and it blew my small, young, tiny brain. Um, it's an interesting show. It's a fantastic show. If you get a chance to go out there and see it, uh, it's still touring in the UK. This next week we're in Birmingham, Cardiff. Uh, come along. It's a fantastic show. And if you do come along, try and find me. I'll be there with uh, video cameras and uh, it'd be great to say hello to people who actually listen to our podcast. But I've not, in a long roundabout way, I've not had much chance to see anything since. What was the last thing I saw? I saw the Harley Quinn movie, which I thought was okay. I didn't love it. I didn't gush. Uh, but you've seen That's quite fine. a lot. I, I really enjoyed Harley Quinn. It's good. We, see, we, we can debate. We're not going to fall out of a Twitter war. Wait until I'm on Twitter later. I'll be slagging you off. <laughs> <laughs> I've, along with watching some new films, I've also been delving through the back history of Oscar-nominated films. Ah, yes, your personal quest. Yes, uh, I went through the Meet the Awards app and marked all the films from Oscar history from the very first one onwards that I wanted to see. And I've got a watch list of about 400 films now. In fact, you mentioned to me last time we caught up that you were about to watch, and I highly recommended it, The Sting. Yep. Did you watch it and did you enjoy it? I did, yes. I mean, I watched, but Butch Cassidy was one that I watched for the first as time you as know, well. My all time favourite. Logically, film. I had to go on and watch The Sting yeah. after that. I absolutely adored both films. They are, those two just worked so well together. I did a whole like MTOS discussion around Paul Newman, and those films came up quite frequently. What a what an actor Newman was in his in, not even in his heyday even later in life. Uh, but I also emotionally crippled myself over a few days because I watched Marriage Story. Still to watch and really like felt like impacted with it. I finally got round to watching Dancer in the Dark, Lars von Trier's. Not a film I'm film. a big fan of. Um, it destroyed me. It's it's emotionally grinding. It, it absolutely. I, I want to watch it again, but I need to leave myself a good few months before I can. I'd say years of therapy in between. And then I finally got around to watching Kramer versus Kramer the next day. Oh, fantastic! And, you must have sobbed for days then. I, I was a wreck. And <laughs> I, I need therapy now. This is. The, I, I then made sure that the next few films were going to be like lighter entertainment. So I've now got my next lot to work through. But aside from catching up with old films that seriously I should have watched these years ago. These are real big holes in my viewing. Classics, absolute classics. Um, of the new films that are out at the moment, got to see Sonic. I'm Sonic. I'm here to protect my friends. Pew, 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 pew. Super Sonic. The government wants to dissect you and arrest me. We gotta lay low. Let me show you how it's done. Time to go. I'm coming for you. That was an illegal left, by the way. Here comes the boom. I have no idea. Sonic the Hedgehog. I'm okay. Sonic the Hedgehog, as for those who don't know, based on a popular game. Yes, you heard it here first. Based on a popular game. And it's done very well at the box office. It's done phenomenally at the box office. Uh, The brief synopsis is that when his home in Green Hill Zone comes under attack by an unknown menace who seek his powers, young Sonic is given a bag of magic rings to use to teleport to safety, each one able to open a portal into another world. He winds up on our planet and spends his life growing up in isolation, watching the activities of a small town, and in particular the town sheriff, who he calls the Donut King, played by James Marsden. He calls him the Donut King because whenever he's watching him, as any, any cop does, he's eating he's donuts. A donut. However, when an accident raises awareness of Sonic's presence, bringing military and Dr. Robotnik, played by Jim Carrey, to the town, the Blue Hedgehog must team with the sheriff to seek his magic rings and get to safety. The film is everything that I expected it to be it was fun it's a family-friendly video game movie that doesn't try to be anything other than what it is and it's just presenting just over an hour and a half of energy and fun on the screen have we turned a corner then on the video game to movie ideal because we've it's it's been a patchy run it, it's always been like a, oh another video game movie oh and they, they end up just being so changed from the video game that they have no relevance to the people who grew up with the video game, but they're paying too much reference to the video game at the same time to alienate other audiences. I think we're hitting a time where they're getting to go a good balance. Last year's Detective Pikachu did a great job it uh, did. It was a bringing great film, that actually. to the screen and giving a film with some good heart in there. And, and you given didn't need it to something know, new to it. You didn't need to know anything about Pokemon in order to just go along with the flow and enjoy it. Whilst if you were a fan of Pokemon, you would spend hours picking out every little bit of detail in the background. And yeah, I I think we're on this new wave of they're actually embracing the video game heritage whilst not trying to be anything too clever. They're just delivering on it. I mean, upcoming films, video game-wise, we've already mentioned um, Uncharted. 
Uh, there's also Borderlands is in production, but with Eli, um, Roth. Eli Roth directing, which is a uh, first person, for those who don't know, Borderlands is a first person shooter game with a really wicked sense of humour and lots of gore and blood. Eli Roth. See, sounds uh, perfectly cho- chosen there. You've got Monster Hunter. You've got Resident Evil getting a reboot. You've got Sleeping Dogs. You've got Tomb Raider sequel on the way. You've got even got a Minecraft movie. Ben Wheeler's movie. doing that, did you know? That's a, a weird choice. Yeah. Um, Minecraft movie. Uh, Mortal Kombat, more and more. I think we are entering a video game to movie revolution. And it's looking like they're all going to get pretty well received. I mean, the Tomb Raider film got a good reception. It didn't do great, but it did enough to justify them doing the sequel. And it was faithful to the new rebooted video game so well that that was me caught when I saw the first trailer. And the feedback from like audiences was like, quite enjoyed that. She was great in it as well. She She, was marvellously cast. She really felt like we were watching... Lara Croft, and she had uh, everything about Lara Croft's energy came across in it. I, I think the film sort of drifted in in the second half. I thought it, it it stayed very close to to the rebooted game, but it's interesting. I mean, the main problem you always get is it's clearly games are interactive, and the movie isn't. You're a, you're you're a passive observer, as a, apart from uh, controlling the characters. But the IP on the characters is the interesting bit of. of building those characters up and seeing more of them in a way that you can't do with the game because at some point you've got to get into game territory. The interesting thing with the Sonic one is the the redesign of the Sonic character. Well, that was um, all over. That was the big thing, wasn't it? Yeah, that initial trailer came out and people's knee-jerk reaction was like, whoa, what have they done to Sonic? And then when they went back and finished it and um, tweaked it and changed the design, it got much better reception. Whether that was a deliberate thing, there are conspiracy theories out there to say that there always? It, it was done purposely because they knew that if they had just released the trailer people would have sneered at a video game movie but by releasing a trailer that has this one jarring problem with it but then saying as the film's creators we're going to listen to you the fans i'm going to fix it it got the fans back on board is there another is there any other example of a trailer being released and producers actually listening to what the fans say and and making amends anything spring to mind well justice league when they got rid of zack Snyder. But... <laughs> Moving on. <laughs> Just a call back to that one. <laughs> Moving swiftly on to... <laughs> Before we get lambasted. Uh, but yeah, it, the redesign of him looks cartoony in the real world, but you accept it and it, it works. It doesn't look like it should be in the real world, but we don't care because it looks like Sonic and it looks great. It's fun. It's vibrant. It's genuinely, genuinely funny. But I do think a lot of his success has come from that really good feeling that the filmmakers got um, with the audience by saying, we've listened to your criticisms and we're going to fix it in time for the film. And they've delivered it. I, you saw, I mean, again, on Twitter and all social media, you saw people before the film came out saying, I feel that because they've listened to us, I need to reward them. So I've booked my ticket for this weekend. So people were influenced by this change of the character. Drop us a line and tell us your favourite game to movie. And I'd be really impressed if someone does say that they love the Super Mario Oof. film. I, I, I'll just be very pleased if, Loads of people reply to say Silent Hill because that is a great video game movie. It wasn't bad, actually. Moving away from family, fun, friendly um, entertainment. Next film that I've seen is The Invisible Man. And I've not seen it myself. Hey, been waiting hey. all day to tell that. Haven't seen <laughs> The Invisible Man. You better than anyone else in the world. We need each other. Each other is stalking me. He's figured out a way to be invisible. Hello? There you are. Surprise. <laughs> Time is not playing games. Show yourself. Surprise. The Invisible Man. Uh, Lee Wannell's new take on this classic tale sees Elizabeth Moss as a woman who escapes an abusive relationship, but soon finds reason to believe that her ex is still trying to control her life, only has somehow made himself invisible. It's an interesting take. Now, the trailers, when these landed for this, I remember watching the trailer and thinking, have they just shown us the whole film? Because it, it seemed to just show. Yes, you, I'll agree with you. You, you even that. thought that, like, wow, I've seen the final scene. That, that's clearly from the final scene. There's a lot of misdirection in that trailer, and there's a lot that they didn't A lot you show. didn't see. A lot you didn't see. The film is about two hours long, and it's a, it's a well-paced two hours. Starting off with her, like, it literally opens with her sneaking out of the house in the middle of the night away from her abusive partner and climbing over the wall and disappearing. And then it cuts to like months later. And that's when things start to go very strange for her. There's a lot of um, what I like to refer to as paranormal activity style of shots where the camera will just move away from a person and just look at nothing. But the small little details that take place within that framing 
one thing will move or a door will unlock or anything like that. So it, it keeps you constantly like trying to look towards the background from that point onwards. And more than anything, it's a great new take on The Invisible Man. It weaves around the back end of the, the, the final act of the film has so many rug pulls and little twists and turns. It just keeps you guessing right up to the last minute. Elizabeth Moss, marvellous actress. Yeah. She is amazing pretty much. I mean, I was first introduced to her via Mad Men. Yeah. yeah as well, we most are. people were. I can't help but be absolutely astonished every time that she's on screen with how much she gives into a role. And here she plays a woman who's obviously, com- she's not very confident in herself. That's how she got herself into an abusive relationship. And then she starts to doubt her sanity. And she plays that beautifully through the film. You, there's moments that you start thinking, well, maybe we are just seeing delusions of a madwoman here and this is all fake. She grows, develops and changes throughout the film in a very convincing way. Absolutely brilliant to watch on screen. Watch this um, I watched this in the IMAX down in London while I was down there, and it really deserves to be seen on the big screen because uh, some of the effects work are really well done. There's some great little framing uses that I just feel might be lost a bit on the small screen. Interesting. Is this the same? Do we know if this is the same script that they were going to use for the Dark Universe? I don't, I've seen speculation online that the Dark Universe ideas just kind of got thrown away and this is a whole new take. And I've heard it said that they're going to try to not weave everything together anymore. They don't need to build this universe and this world-building aspect that this is just its own film franchise. Good. Other films will be their own film franchise. Because they definitely, I mean, let's be honest, The Mummy. Better left raveled than unraveled. Yeah. Put it back in its tomb. Let it do what it, let it, let it just rot away there. And before we finish, have anything else that you want to uh, you want to review? Dark Waters, which was the big oh, on paper looks like the big Oscar contender. Yeah, I mean, um, story wise and casting wise, this should have had Oscars written all over it, but it didn't even get noms on the Oscars. It, it got completely overlooked. Uh, Mark Ruffalo is a corporate lawyer taking on Dupont uh, Corporation after a family friend shows him how his farm's being impacted by chemical dumping. This is a true story. It's based on the true story. He takes on the mega corporation responsible for bringing Teflon to our homes. Uh, and if anyone wants to research into the true life story of it, this film cover is a good starting point and then spin off your research from there because it covers the long period of the battle. I mean, it's two decades of battle that has taken place to get some justice for people who've been impacted by a chemical that was deemed as being non-harmful and so didn't get any government regulations on it. It covers corporate corruption, it covers government corruption, and it also covers the paranoia that can build up when you feel that you're taking on the big mega corporations that basically rule the world. This is a powerful story. Ruffalo is absolutely brilliant in it. Uh, he is great. I mean, just people forget now that he's done the Hulk a couple of times and we've seen him more whimsical, but he's he's, he's, a, he's a strong, strong character actor. Um, and, I've seen, you know, even the stuff that he did in Zodiac and, 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 and the work he's done previously, fantastic actor. Yeah, it's a film that also highlights something that is still around us every day. Teflon is still used. There's still no restrictions on it. Some countries have started to try to put restrictions on it, but it's so ingrained in everything. I mean, from nonstick pans to even your carpet fibres are coated with Teflon, that you need to be aware of the possibility that this could be killing you. Admittedly, you have to get it over 300 degrees Celsius before it starts releasing the vapours. But when you're cooking on a hob and your pan burns, you've just released those vapours. And that's the concern is this. I mean, I knew little about this whole court aspect until I watched this film. But now I want to research more. Um, it's another one of those films that because it brings us right up to date, not everything's completely resolved yet. Interesting. But it's a brilliant film about... Because Mark Ruffalo's character is was a corporate lawyer who used to defend the corporations. He would like was from one of the big name uh, lawyers that would always be there to like... Any, any suits brought against such and such corporation, they're the people who like put them down, put them down. So he's flipping to actually attack the biggest corporation of the time. Powerful drama, emotionally powerful, and raising public awareness on issues. And well worth seeing. So before we leave you, Andy and I will tell you about the neat thing that we found over the last few weeks, whether it's uh, something we've seen, watched, played with, you name it. Uh, Andy, you go first. What's your neat thing? My neat thing ties into one of my favourite sitcoms of all time, The Office, the US version. All right. Uh, I've rewatched them three times already. And I'm currently on my fourth rewatch because of a podcast. Okay. That podcast is Office Ladies, which is available on all good streaming platforms. In fact, if while you're on there, 
follow us as well. Um, Angela Kinsey and Jenna Fisher, who played Angela and Pam in The Office, are basically doing an episode-by-episode podcast where they dig into each episode with some behind-the-scenes anecdotes, some stories of like character development, and just a general 45 minutes or so of talking around that episode with some fan questions coming in and answering what they can. They occasionally get guests in who either directed, wrote, or starred on The Office to talk about different aspects of it. And it's such a great listen. I wasn't going to re-watch the show. I just started listening to the podcast because I'd heard some decent things about it. And at the end of each podcast, I was like, oh, I want to watch that episode now. So I'll watch it again. And then listen to the next episode. And then watch the next episode. And now I'm at that stage that because of the way that they're analysing the episodes, I, I feel that I need to watch the episode before to listen to the podcast and then watch it afterwards to All see right. the things that I didn't see. It's absolutely marvellous. I mean, they point up little nuggets of information of continuity things that they've um, spotted seeds that were laid early on in the seasons which came to light later on little in jokes that they had on and you get the feeling from their discussions of the whole thing that what you see on screen with how like close they were as a group that was what they were like in real life that they were all they all got to be really good friends through it and they had such a good time on set despite the fact that sometimes some of them would be sat in the background of a shot for eight hours while the same scene got reshot and reshot and reshot it's a great witty podcast by two great friends who came about from The Office. And if you're a fan of The Office in any way, shape or form, it's a well worth listen. You can find it on all streaming platforms, Office Ladies, get it checked out. I, I like, and this, I think these podcast things are a wonderful idea and and, and people should listen we to should more. We should get on that one then. We should do it. I also like the fact that just the insight that you can get. I mean, I was always a big fan of director commentaries um, and just, just diverting a little bit. Have you uh, had... Um, I listen to comic book commentaries. No. Which is a similar sort of thing. It's a writer or an artist of, a, of an issue basically doing a deep dive on that issue. And Ooh. I've just listened to, and I think, cause I think it's a fantastic run on Daredevil at the moment. Uh, Chip Zdinsky's run on it. It talks about, you can go back and, and let him talk about uh, the, the first book and his, and his run. And it just gives a, a real insight to how he created it, how he wrote it. But it's, uh, it's, it's comic book. Comic book uh, commentaries, I think it's called, and well worth listening to if you're a big comic book fan. My neat thing, it ties back to something we talked about earlier in the show, which is Doc Savage. Uh, as a childhood Doc Savage fan, I got to see the Ron Eli version. And when I was a little kid, I thought it was great. It didn't stand the test of time. It was very campy in, in the, uh, that sort of way that superheroes were portrayed back in the 70s based on after the, uh, after the Batman TV show. Uh, but I've always been a big fan. I've always thought there's a better film to be had. And, and now apparently we're going to get a TV series. But at one point there was going to be a Doc Savage movie. Uh, and it was going to uh, it was going to come out in the 60s after the craze of, of James Bond and the Batman movie. Uh, and it was decided to pick Doc Savage to turn him into a, into a film. And there was a script written uh, and it was they were going to go with uh, the Thousand Headed Man story for the plot of, of a first Doc Savage film. Chuck Connors, who was uh, a star of Rifleman, uh, was chosen to play Doc, and the rest of the cast, including the great Bill Bixby, were, were cast, and it was ready to go. And there's a, a great website for you to check this out called Hero Histories, which gives you all the information about the pre-production of this film. Needless to say, the film never happened. And it turns out, well, I tell you what, read the webpage, and it turns out why this film, film never happened. But literally, it was cast, it was ready to film, and it became an entirely different film for reasons. That you'll read in 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 that particular web page, uh, and it's great, and it, it's it's one of those what if stories. What if there had been a, a Doc Savage film uh, made in the sixties? Uh, and that's Hero Histories, and you can find it online. And I love what if stories, you know, <laughs> of of castings that never happened or films that were about to go into production uh, and didn't quite make it. And as a huge Doc Savage fan. It is a shame that we never got to see it, but apparently now we're going to get a TV series. And that's it for this episode of The Film File. We'll be back, ooh, should we say a couple of weeks? Should we say a couple of weeks? A couple of weeks sounds We'll fun. try as best. If not, we'll see you sometimes. And just remember, next time I say, let's go somewhere like Bolivia. Let's go somewhere like Bolivia.